What is up, Iwu crew? Today, we are taking a look at three more cases that have unexpected or shocking twists. Some of these stories are so bizarre, you just might not believe they're real, but they are all true. Let's get into it. In today's first case, the world of fantasy on the internet collided dramatically with reality. It is the case of a tragic love triangle and the links that people will go to for attention and revenge. In May 2005, 46-year-old Thomas Montgomery, a married father with two children, found a fantasy escape within the chat room of the popular gaming site Pogo. Though the site was aimed for the use of teenagers, it was perfect for Thomas. Exploiting the anonymity of the internet, he created a profile with the name Marine Sniper where he pretended to be a young Iraq-bound Marine. Thomas chose the handle as a callback to the six years he had served in the military when he was younger. Though his name suggested he was a sniper during that time, he never actually trained as one, furthering the fantasy element of his online profile. At first, the chat room was a place of escapism for Thomas, a place for him to feel young and robust. But soon, one of the players on the site, by the handle of Tall Hot Blonde, caught his attention. The two started chatting, and Tall Hot Blonde told him that her real name was Jessie, and that she was 18. Jessie told him she was from West Virginia, and that she was a senior in high school who played softball. Thomas responded by telling her that he went by Tommy, and that he was also 18. Believing that they would never meet in real life, he saw no harm in the lie. The two began to flirt over the chat, which after some time escalated into a full-blown internet romance. As their online courtship progressed, Jessie began to send Thomas photos of herself, which became progressively more provocative. Thomas returned with photos of himself from 30 years earlier, ones where he was almost unrecognizable to how he looked now. The relationship soon went beyond the chat room, and the two started to talk on the phone, trading love letters and gifts. And all the while, Thomas knew that he was lying to Jesse, but the relationship had become completely consuming for Thomas, which he later described as, more real to me than real life. It was like a, a drug that I needed every day. Over the chat, Jesse wrote, I love you always and forever, Tommy. With Thomas responding, I've never felt this way. But the fantasy world of the internet can only stay separate from the real world for so long. Sometime in March 2006, one of Thomas's daughters used his computer just when Jesse messaged him. Startled by what she read, she immediately told her mother, Cindy, who then went through Thomas's computer and found all of the pair's messages, love letters, photos, and even a pair of red underwear that Jesse had sent Thomas. Enraged and hurt by the lies and deceit of her husband, Cindy took matters into her own hands and messaged Jesse back. She sent a photo of their family and wrote, let me introduce you to these people. The man in the center is Tom, my husband, since 1989. He is 46 years old. Do not trust words on a computer. 
let this go. You will only be hurt by a man who had mastered the art of manipulation and lies. Jessie responded with horror, texting Thomas and telling him that she hated him and that he should be put in jail for what he had done. But the saga didn't end there. Dealing with her own heartbreak, Jessie went through denial, and she ended up tracking down one of Thomas's co-workers, 22-year-old college student and part-time machinist Brian Barrett. Over a chat room where Brian used the username Beefcake, Jesse asked him if what Thomas's wife had told her was true. It wasn't long before Jesse and Brian started an affair of their own, sparking enormous jealousy in Thomas, who watched their flirting over the chat room and heard about it from co-workers in real life. As he grew angrier about Jesse's new love, Thomas messaged her saying that Brian will pay in blood and calling her a variety of offensive names. To retaliate, both Jesse and Brian told everyone on the forums his true age. Yet during all of this, Jesse appeared torn between her first romance and her new relationship with Brian. Frequently, she would message Thomas to tell him that she missed him and that she wished they could be together. Now that Jesse knew about his family and his real age, Thomas felt like he had hit the jackpot and that an attractive young girl liked him for who he really was. Even though the two seemed to rekindle their romance, Jesse once again called it off. After some time, she began talking to Brian again, and this time Thomas's jealousy at Jesse's betrayal turned into something even darker. With Thomas out of the picture, Brian and Jesse's romance flourished and the two decided to meet in person for the first time. Brian planned to drive to West Virginia, but Jesse texted him at the last moment to cancel. Somehow, Thomas learned about the couple's plan, and his rage at the rejection drove him mad. Just as Brian was leaving work on September 15, 2006, Thomas sought his revenge against the man he believed had stolen his love from him. Brian was found dead in the parking lot where both men worked, with three bullet wounds from a military rifle. During the ensuing investigation, Thomas and Brian's co-workers told police about the internet love triangle. The police worried that if Thomas was capable of killing Brian, that he might also hurt Jesse. But when they tracked her down to see if she was alright, they discovered a shocking secret. When police arrived at Jesse's address, a woman named Mary Schuyler opened the door. Under the pressure of police questioning, 45-year-old Mary revealed a tangled web of deception and lies. She was Jesse. Mary had been catfishing both Brian and Thomas, just as Thomas had done with her. The photos she used to create her fake online profile were of Mary's own real daughter, Jessie. The real Jessie had no idea that her mother had taken the pictures of her, never mind was using them to talk to men online. Though Mary had never intended that Thomas would kill Brian over her online romances, she had played with both men's feelings, knowing that she was lying the entire time. What's more, it is reported that Mary had a husband of her own, who divorced her shortly after she confessed her secret plot to the police. 
Thomas was initially charged with second-degree murder. He pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of first-degree manslaughter and received a 20-year sentence. Prosecutors attempted to charge Mary with something for her role in the tragic and deadly love triangle. As many believed she had provoked Thomas into his jealous rage, all for a fake online relationship. But she hadn't technically done anything illegal, and so she was never charged. Mary has only spoken publicly once about what she had done, saying, I just never thought it would go anywhere, that it would end, fall off, and that would be the end of it. Reportedly, Mary never apologized for her actions, not even to her daughter, who has since cut off contact with her. This shocking story was depicted in a documentary in 2009 and in the 2012 film Tall Hot Blonde. In 2007, Ron Williamson met 83-year-old retired Air Force General Jack Raines while at a flea market in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Jack had retired from the U.S. Air Force after 32 years of service, after which he worked as the Woodbury's police chief and as a state trooper. Though he lived with his wife at a nursing home, Jack became friendly with the entire Williamson family. For over four years, he was frequently invited to their family gatherings during holidays, spent time with Ron's children, and went to cookouts at their house. Ron's wife, 39-year-old Tina, especially hit it off with Jack, and the two became instant friends. Tina and Jack eventually went into business together, where they bought and sold used cars. Because of their work together, the two opened a joint checking account. Jack and Tina spent large amounts of time together and grew incredibly close. On August 31st, Tina was picked up at her home by Jack, and the two went for breakfast together and ran some errands before he once again dropped her off. The next day, on September 1st, Ron and Tina went to visit Jack at his home. As soon as they arrived, they realized something was off. They had a key to the house and let themselves in. Inside, they found Jack dead, sitting at his kitchen table in his underwear and undershirt. Ron reported the murder to the police, telling them that it looked like there had been a robbery. It was uncovered that Jack had likely died the day before he was found, on August 31st. Jack had been shot multiple times, including five gunshot wounds directly to the back of his head. Investigators soon realized that the crime scene had been staged to resemble a robbery, but there was no evidence of a forced entry and many valuable items were still in the house. Police soon had a suspect in mind for the gruesome and shocking murder, Tina. She was arrested on December 4th. The police were alerted to her as a suspect because of her strange behavior after Jack's death, especially considering how close the two of them had been. Tina was arrested on the basis that she owned a gun that matched the bullets used to kill Jack, but there was no physical evidence such as fingerprints to tie Tina to the crime scene. However, just before her arrest, a witness came forward with evidence of their own. Betty Olson, Tina's close friend, 
had been contacted by detectives when they saw that she had been called by Tina following the time that Jack had died. She told detectives that on August 31st, she picked Tina up a block away from where Jack lived. The investigators had Olsen contact Tina so that they could secretly record their interactions. In the recordings, Tina told Olsen not to tell the police about giving her a ride and that she was worried about her location being pinpointed by her cell phone. Tina also revealed that she was glad that the detectives who spoke to her hadn't discovered the $4,600 cash that she had in her purse at the time. Tina also told Olsen that if she had killed someone, Tina would cover for her. These recordings and Olsen's eyewitness testimony were used to paint a picture of Tina as a heartless murderer during her trial, but her defense claimed that she had no motive to kill Jack. Evidence soon arose that on the day that he died, Jack took out $489 from their shared account, and then later the same day, Tina took out $1,500 before she deposited $1,900 in her own bank account. Not only that, but Jack also had left Tina $100,000, which she cashed out only a week after he died. One bank employee said that they had observed Tina shaking uncontrollably. Tina later stated that the money he left her wasn't for her to go and spend, but to be set aside in case he wasn't able to care for himself because he was in his 80s. Tina claimed that Jack intended her to be the one to ensure he was cared for, though he had a living wife and son at the time of his death. After searching Tina and Ron's house, many of Jack's possessions were discovered, including his military records, his blank checks, and the title to his car in the joint checkbook he shared with Tina, which had a spot of blood on it. However, it was during the trial that a shocking twist was asserted. The prosecution alleged that Tina and Jack's relationship went beyond their business together and that the two had become romantically involved, despite the 45-year age difference between them. Addressing the claim, Tina said, I loved him as anyone would their grandpa. He was part of our family. Tina continually denied ever having an affair with Jack, but DNA evidence seemed to prove otherwise. Jack's underwear contained traces of Tina's DNA, which implied that their relationship was much more intimate than she ever admitted. Furthermore, a witness, Jerry Kirby, came forward and said that he had seen Tina hug and kiss Jack on the mouth. He said, I thought it was awfully funny, an older man like that. Another witness, Jack Simon, said that Jack called Tina his girlfriend. Tina claims that she is innocent, that she was never in a relationship with Jack. Despite this, in December of 2007, Tina was convicted by a jury for second-degree murder, felony murder, a murder committed during another crime, and aggravated robbery. As the judge read her sentence, which was life plus 20 years, totaling a whopping 71 years in prison. Tina reportedly collapsed and hit her head against the floor of the courtroom. In the year 2065, Tina will be able to seek parole, 
making her 96 years old at the time she could be released. Our next case for you is about Police Lieutenant Charles Joseph Glenowitz. Charles was a married father of four in Fox Lake, Illinois. The 52-year-old was incredibly popular in his community and went by the nickname G.I. Joe. He was described as a tattooed and caring role model for many young people in the community who wanted to go into law enforcement. His youth mentorship program was called the Explorers Program. On September 1st, 2015, at 7.52 a.m., Charles radioed his dispatch that he was in pursuit of three men at an abandoned cement plant in Fox Lake. He requested backup, which arrived at 8.09. The responding officers discovered Charles's dead body in a marsh 50 yards from his vehicle. He had been shot twice, one bullet piercing his cell phone and ballistic vest, with the second hitting him in the upper chest, which likely killed him. There were also bruises and scrapes on his head, which looked like he had been in a struggle. It was believed that he had been murdered by the three unknown attackers. The officers searched the swampy area and found Charles's radio, taser, and pepper spray all spread through the marsh. But his gun wasn't uncovered until over an hour later, though it was only three feet from his body. Through an autopsy, it was later discovered that the murder weapon used to kill Charles was his own 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Following Charles' death, an enormous manhunt began to find and apprehend the men who had killed such a beloved and respected officer. Over 400 officers and volunteers were part of the search on foot, in cars, helicopters, on horseback, and operating drones. Charles's case gained national attention and the ATF and FBI became involved. The first lead came the day following Charles's death, when a woman named Kristen Kiefer called to tell officers that while she was on the side of the road in Volo, Illinois, she had been approached by two men from a cornfield. She said that the men tried to steal her car, and she escaped by running away. Roadblocks, the canine unit, and three air units totaling almost 100 officers were set up to find the men. After days of searching, Kiefer admitted that she had lied about the entire story, and she was promptly arrested and charged with two counts of disorderly conduct for falsifying a police report. Fox Lake held a vigil for Charles where his grieving family spoke and thanked everyone for their determination to catch Charles's killers. The following day, the Chicago Bears played a tribute to Charles. The Illinois governor, Bruce Rauner, had all of the state's flags lowered to half-staff to honor Charles. His funeral was attended by thousands from across the country, many of whom were other officers. The procession spanned 18 miles long, and thousands of viewers took to the streets to watch. After so much publicity following Charles's death, those tasked to find his killers were more determined than ever. Over 125 officers were on the case for multiple weeks, working for almost 25,000 hours. However, 
Not everyone was convinced by the story that three men had overpowered and killed Charles. One man in particular took issue with how the evidence of the crime scene was being interpreted. Joseph Battaglia, a former Chicago officer, took it upon himself to start contacting police agencies and the media to tell them that he thought Charles intentionally shot himself. After two months of continuing investigation, a shocking twist was revealed. Charles hadn't been murdered at all. Instead, he had staged an elaborate crime scene to make it look as though he had died in the line of duty to cover up the fact that he had shot himself twice. But this was just the beginning of the shocking revelations. Charles had been embezzling tens of thousands of dollars from the Fox Lake Police Explorer program. He had used the money to pay for his own mortgage, travel, gym memberships, and subscriptions to adult websites. He also used the money to stockpile military gear, including Kevlar helmets, radios, gas masks, and hundreds of gun belts. But that's not all. Disturbing occurrences were uncovered involving harassment, suspensions, alcohol abuse, and an incident where Charles threatened an emergency dispatcher with a gun. Eventually, over 6,500 text messages that Charles had deleted were recovered which showed that he had intended to take out a village administrator named Anne Marin, who had started an audit of his explorer's program. Her audit would have uncovered his embezzling. Allegedly, Charles had even contacted a prominent gang member to kill Marin for him. Small packages of cocaine were found in his desk, which investigators believe he had used to attempt to frame Marin as a drug criminal before she could expose him. Marin later commented, When I heard he was concerned that I was asking tough questions about the Explorer program, it only confirmed to me that asking the tough questions was the absolute right thing to do. However, she has shared that she had no idea about his sinister plot and the extreme lengths he was planning to go to in order to get rid of her. When Charles believed that his crimes were about to be brought to light, he faked his own murder in the hopes to keep it all a secret. All tributes to Charles were removed, and his wife Melody was taken to court over money laundering. Though she pled not guilty, her trial is still pending in 2021. The public's outpouring of grief over Charles's death quickly turned to horror at his betrayal. The task force commander in charge of the bizarre investigation has lamented. Glinowitz committed the ultimate betrayal. This is my first time as a law enforcement officer in my career that I felt ashamed by the acts of another police officer. In the end, it is reported that the first three weeks of this wild goose chase alone cost taxpayers more than $300,000 to pay law enforcement working on the case much of this substantial cost stemming from overtime. Charles's memory went from being a celebrated hero to a criminal. A sign with his picture was defaced with the words, Forgotten, Lied, Stole, Disgraced. Each of these three shocking cases show that there is always another layer to every story, even if it can seem unbelievable.